Let's pray and then we'll look into John 11, chapter 11. God, we are grateful that you have gathered us together this morning. We are grateful for your word that you've allowed us to look into the minds to to devour it. And now we just pray that our hearts can be open to absorb what you want us to hear through our amiable efforts of understanding and my feeble attempts to um, to get across what you've given me to, to say today. So you will be glorified. Amen. Glorified. Glory. When we think of glory, we think of um, sometimes it's hard to have words to go with it. Magnificence, brilliance, um, illuminating. The word actually means to be illuminated, to be um, accepted, to have approval. So when God is, is glorified, he's got the, um, we're, we're seeing the approval. We are approving, we are acknowledging, we are understanding, we are getting an idea of who he is, and we are brought in and approving of that. Um, we are one with that. We are in agreement with that of who he is, being his creatures. And so there's a connectedness with that. It is the most important theme in the universe, the God of glory. That's the most important theme. The whole reason he came was for him to be glorified. And he's glorified through others. Through um, It's a relationship thing. It'd be like if a little kid was out there bat throwing up balls and batting them and throwing up balls and batting them all by himself and he throws one up and he hits it and he was able to oh man I'm going to run the bases and no one's there is he glorified no so it's something that we received back no one was there to say hey wow that was so cool and everything that was an an, an, an acceptance a validation a what a wonderful thing so the, the whole idea of glory and glorifying is is relational God is called the God of glory in Psalms and in Acts 7.2. Psalm 19.1 says, What the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 9.23 says, He saves sinners in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So he's prepared us for glory too. John 1.14, we started this year with, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen what? His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory. It's a hard word to grasp the concept of. We just, hey, I'm going to glorify God, or glory to God in the highest. And what, what really, what does it mean? After we go through today, I hope we have a, a little bit better understanding of it, and maybe the, the scriptures will really be powerful enough to, to be able to relate what I'm attempting to say up here. So come and see. Come along and see the glory of God. Everything is for the glory of God, even sickness, right? Verse 1 and 2. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with the ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Very minimal introduction. Lazarus and, and his sisters are not the focal point of this passage. John alludes to um, Mary 
um, who has anointed Christ's feet. That's next week. So when he's writing this, he's just identifying them. He identifies the village as a uh, in place, in time. This is an actual event that happened. Okay. So he kind of sets, this are the people involved, but they're not the focal point. Minimal details about the people involved, except that this man, Lazarus, was sick. Verse 3 says, So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's the bottom line here. And as we go through the narrative of what's happening, notice how the people get stuck in the death, in the smell of death, in the hopelessness of death, and even Christ's emotions that come into play. We're going to look at that at a different angle here because it's not like he was you know, upset because of sin, what had done. He was upset because they weren't seeing his glory in it. Okay? And we'll get more into that when we get there. So this is for the glory, the glory of God. Their brother was dying. His death was imminent. They weren't trying to manipulate Jesus. Jesus, you need to come. He's, he, you know, he, he's dead, you know, whatever. They weren't trying to tell him what to do. It was more like humbly and trusting Um, And just bringing this to his attention, like his mother in the wedding, remember, when she said, just do whatever he tells you to do, right? She wasn't going to dictate to him how to solve it, just bringing their request to God. We can learn from this. How often do we say, do it this way, do it this way, this is what I'm expecting, when we just lay it out to him, we just, we just bring it to his attention. And when we do that, we are humbly saying, you are God, our father. Will you take care of this and help me to accept the outcome of it? Jesus didn't rush back, did he? He didn't rush back. Christians, now hear me out with this. Christians are never in a crisis. Never. I learned this decades ago when I was doing my internship at the Department of Psychiatry a psychiatric, a pediatric psychiatrist told me, because he was always dealing with parents in crisis, he said, Molly, Christians are never in crisis. If God's got this, if we trust him, there's never a crisis. There's a lot of emotion that comes into play, but that shouldn't really be a word in our definition. What is a definition of crisis? A crucial or decisive point or situation especially a difficult or unstable situation involving an impending change. A difficult or unstable situation involving an impending change. Well, if we believe that God is the God of glory and he wants to be known, because by him being known, we glorify him, and he wants us to know him because he loves us, he's chosen to. We've got some words in there of love and glory and the sovereignty of God. Those things undergird any situation that we're in. God is the God of glory, and he loves us, and he loves to show off, doesn't he? Doesn't he love to let us know who he is? He wants that. He, 
descended from heaven to be in this world because he wants us to know him. He wants us to know how wonderful he is, that he's God, creator, sovereign, omnipotent, omnipresent. And when we know that and when we believe that, we glorify him. And he wants to tell us that because he loves us. So his glory and his love undergird any situation that we're in. And we just watch with anticipation on how he's going to pull something through on this, don't we? And he loves to wait to the last minute on things too, when it's like an impossible situation. So Lazarus was absolutely dead. Um, But death wasn't going to be the ultimate outcome here. So he delays a little bit. He's not in a hurry. And then in verse 7, he says, okay, it's, it's time to go now. It's time to go, disciples. Let's come up. Come on. It's like, come and see. Come on and see. Verse 7 says, then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, here we got our crisis mode coming in, right? The Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Remember last week, they all picked up stones, but he just kind of was hanging out there. So they're in this panic mode, and they're thinking, you know, you just said he's not going to die, or why not heal him from a distance? We've seen you do that before. Why do you have to go there on this dangerous journey back to where they, they, they hate you and they're trying to kill you. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, there's probably a lot in this and there's probably a, a, a more deeper understanding that I'm not getting with it. But on the surface of this, I think he's pretty much just saying it's a symbolic um, uh, description of, of our length of time on earth. We have allotted time. And while we're here, we need to do the work of God. No amount of worry can lengthen or shorten it. Their concern about it isn't going to extend it. And the Jews that hate him isn't going to shorten it because God is sovereign. Now is the time that we are here to do the work of the Father, that we are to do the work of God. He has an eternal plan. And what is that eternal plan? To show the glory of God. So when we move or we get to go someplace, it's like, oh my gosh, is this going to, it's no, oh, what does he have? When we were looking around to move to a place, to find a new little church to meet in, and we find this one, I, it, this continues to blow me away, how wonderful a facility this is, and how welcoming they are, and loving, and, and it's just, it, it, I'm just ingratiated, thank you, God, um, He likes to do that. He's taking care of us. So his plan is is to glorify himself, to have us know who he is. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, 
but I go to awaken him. Okay, now they're really up puzzled. Is he dead? Is he sleeping? Is he sick? What, you know, what's going on here, Jesus? The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest to sleep. It doesn't matter. In Christ's world, sleeping dead, you see, doesn't really matter. Nothing's impossible with him, right? So he's kind of interchanging these words like, it's okay, you guys, I've got this. It's not a crisis. Death is not the end all to things. He has overcome that. It's another analogy or a little metaphor to kind of look at it is if, you know, you, you watch a little kid out there playing in the sandbox and moving dirt and sand around with their little toy Tonka truck, pushing it around. Do they still make Tonka trucks? Okay. Um, moving them around. And, and that's no different than him having the faith to move a mountain, that pile of dirt. It's interchangeable when it comes to God. It's as easy as pushing a Tonka truck around. Sleeping or dead, it's all the same to God. Now, verse 14 says this. Then Jesus told them plainly, because sometimes he has to spell it out to us too, huh? <laughs> Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I am not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So there we have, he loves these people. He loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus because early on he says, the one you love is sick. That's that love relationship element in it. And now God is going to do something and he wants them to believe in what he's going to do so there he can be glorified. We're pulling those three concepts together. Love and belief equals glorification. But they don't quite get it yet because we see in 16, Thomas, called the twins, said to the fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him, right? He's going to martyr. He's just anticipating they're going to get those stones. And as soon as they set foot into that, that, you know, Jerusalem, that area, even if they get close, they're just going to get stoned. Valiant that he is. But God's timing is always to serves his purpose. And his purpose is to glorify himself because he's the God of glory. So Jesus and his disciples take off and they arrive and he is about to display how his love um, and his glory, things about him that they don't believe yet or have not seen yet. And it's all kind of in anticipation or building up or preparation for the big event of the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's almost like he couldn't quite go right to that because it'd be like, oh my, it would just, we'd just kind of be brain freeze. But because this happened with Lazarus, it's like, oh, well, maybe he can do this. He, he, he rose Lazarus from the dead, so maybe it's not all that impossible. He gently takes care of us because he loves us and he wants us to see who he is. He wants to be known. He's not hiding from us. So 17 says they, they take off. Now Lazarus, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the, in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. 
Dying was a big business then. You paid for mourners. Oh, someplace we got to go. We got to have, you know, sad music. We got to, you know, pay our condolences. And so it was, a, it was a group of people that had gathered. And in that group of people were many people who hated Jesus. And there was sadness and, and just a, a down whatever. He was dead for four days. And it actually says that twice in passage here and later on dead for four days. Now, why is that so significant, the four days? The Jews at the time believed that the soul hovered around the body for three days after death, hoping to re-enter it. Now, this is kind of weird thinking, but you know, back before they had science or whatever, medical, whatever, they thought, well, maybe there's a possibility. And maybe it happened sometimes that people were in a comatose state and then got alive again. So forever their feeble thinking was, they thought four days, but after the fourth day, man, it's, there's, it's hopeless. The body begins to decompose, the soul departs, and death is irreversible. So it had to take to the fourth day for that culture to really understand that it would be a divine miracle if life was restored into this person, into this body. Bethany was close to Jerusalem, two miles out, a lot of... Jesus haters were there, but they were amongst these people who had come to gather to mourn, um, ready to see this miracle. Verse 20, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. She runs away. Usually the grieving family has to sit there and people wait on him and stuff, but she pops up because we know Martha, right? Martha's up, (laughs) hurrying down, different personality than Mary. She runs down. She went to him, but Mary, rem- but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She knew that he could have cured the illness. She knew that. She had seen that. She believed that much. She could glorify God that much. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, was she saying to him to raise him from the dead? No. We don't really know what she was asking. But she knew that just because he didn't heal her brother, she still believed in him. That wasn't the end all to her belief. Well, you didn't do this for me, so, you know, forget about you. She still believed. Not necessarily that he was going to do what he was going to do right now. So... She goes, and she says that to him, but even now I know what, and God will give you, he will do what he wants. Um, And Jesus said to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know, you know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she was acknowledging that, yes, I know he will. Jesus was about to demonstrate that time isn't an obstacle for him. Life and death, death is not an obstacle for him. That he was going to overcome all that, be more powerful than all of that. He wanted Mary, he wanted Martha and eventually Mary to see more of who he is. He was going to reveal more of his godness. And when he reveals more of his godness and we believe in that, he is glorified. That's how we got those. And it's based on a love relationship. 25, Jesus said to her, here's one of the I am's. I am the resurrection 
and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She still quite wasn't understanding. Now, she was grieving, so, you know, we can give her some credit there, cut her some slack. But for us, centuries later, looking back on this now, he's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Not, I am about to resurrect somebody or give them a, I am this. This is who I am. It's a part, it's a, it's a facet, a characteristic, a, a, a attribute, a part of who he is that has not been revealed yet. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? John's whole purpose of writing this gospel, what? So that we would believe, right? So she confesses, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe you're the Christ. Yes, and and I believe you're the Son of God. And yes, I, I believe you're the one that the Old Testament prophesied about, that you were coming into the world. I believe those three things. But she's not grasping because he has not demonstrated it yet. But he will, but he was seeing and and wanting her to see and have enough faith and belief that this is who he is. I think we're really hindered. I know we're really hindered on on how much we really know about God. Um, But he's revealed much about him. But there's all, you know what? We're going to spend eternity getting to know him. What does that mean? We're never going to completely get to know him right? We're spending eternity getting to know God. That means it's boundless. Now, we're outside of time, so there's not a time element. But before I get you utterly confused, I mean, he's, he's pretty big God. All right. He wants her. He loves her. He wants her to believe in him, and that glorifies him. His, the fifth claim, the fifth I am, the resurrection and the life. Verse 28 when she, had said, when she had said this, she went out and called her sister Mary and said in private, the teacher's here, come on out, he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. And now Jesus had not come yet into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that she rose quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to go to the tomb to weep there. So because they had to hang around, the paid musicians and the mourners kind of had to go with them with their box of Kleenex and follow them out. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him. She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who were, had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He sees her fall on her face, weeping in, in despair and sorrow and mourning. And he also saw those around her weeping. And this deeply moved him. Humor me for a minute. The scene is professional wailing women, flute players, a chaotic scene, a boo-hoo, boo-hoo, boo-hoo. The sisters were deeply grieved. The people around her were just, and even her, having this sense of a hopelessness and despair. 
So when the scripture says here that he was deeply moved, and our translation here in the ESV says deeply moved, if we go back to the original Greek, it means to literally snort like a horse. Now stay with me. When a horse is going to snort, he's mad. (laughs) And you get out of the way. (laughs) It's translated sternly, Sternly warned or scolding. The same word here, deeply moved, is also used as a, is in Matthew, uh, when Jesus is scolding others, when he performed a miracle or he did something, he says, and don't go tell anybody about it. Matthew 9, 3, Mark 1, 43, Mark 14, 5. If you want to look up those words where it was like deeply moved and look at the, the context of what that was. Mark 9.3, I mean, sorry, Matthew 9.3, Mark 1.43, Mark 14.5. It's a connotation for anger and outrage and indignation. He was upset and deeply moved by these idiots who were there, giving, not even believing in who he was. The focus was him. The focus isn't on death. The focus isn't on the crisis. The focus isn't on dying. The focus is on him. He came that he can be known, and he's living right there with them. He, look at me, he's basically saying. Snorts like a horse. Sheep. You know what sheep do when they get upset? That's what they do. That's all they do. Like, that's going to scare a coyote away. <laughs> it's kind of funny when, I mean, I try not to laugh at him. I thought, <laughs> when the dog gets too close, that's what those ewes do. <laughs> and he was greatly troubled. Let's look at that. Greatly troubled. It describes a strong emotion inside. This is the human side of who he is. This is like, I mean, God has these powerful emotions, but this is humanity coming through also being exposed. This phrase, greatly troubled, is used in several other places here. Matthew 2, 3, Herod's reaction to the Magi's arrival. He was greatly troubled by that, wasn't he? Luke 1, 12. Zacharias fear when he saw the angel in the temple that would be greatly troubled wouldn't it Luke 24:38 the disciples amazement at seeing Jesus after his resurrection that was very perplexing to them Luke 12:27 Jesus's reaction to his impending death we know there was a lot of greatly troubledness with that and then uh, I think it's John 13, 21, his response to Judas's imminent betrayal. So that word greatly troubled, he's greatly moved, he's angry, and he's troubled. There's a lot of emotion going on inside of him because he's on the cusp almost of doing this fantastic miracle, and he wants him to say, it's me who's going to do it. It's me, 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 me. Jesus is saying, me, I am the resurrection and the life. Put all your focus on me. I'm going to about to do this and demonstrate it, but you're caught up in a, 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 a side tactic. Now, I'm minimizing that because I know when we lose someone in death, it's very distraught and very discouraging, but we've got to say, but Jesus, but Jesus, it's all about him. It's all about God. He's the one I serve. Though he slay me, I will serve him. He appears angry not only over the painful reality of sin and death, but over the mourners who are acting like pagans with no hope. And then Jesus wept. 
He wept, silently bursting into tears, generated by love. He, and it wasn't a hopeless despair. It was a desire, I think, to, to have them know him. Just to believe. Put your love in me. Just, just know that I love you and I'm going to take care of you. I think the weeping was such a strong desire for Mary and Martha and, and those other believers there to just say, Hey, I'm here. Some of the people were very perplexed at what was going on here. Um, They said, where am I in 37? Okay, and he said in verse 34, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. They They are recognizing the fact that he loved them which is a good first step acknowledgement of what Christ is going through to help them understand what he's about to do. It was based on because he loved him that he's going to raise him from the dead and he's going to be glorified. But some of them could, some of them said, could not he have opened the eyes of the, he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? I mean, he just cured the blind man. So that was kind of fresh on their mind. They're saying, well, he could have. Why is he crying? He could have done something to prevent this, right? He could have. He could have, he could have not had this happen. So they were perplexed about all of that stuff, but they did notice how much he loved them. They saw his love, but they didn't quite grasp his glory that was going to happen just yet. So in 38, Jesus was deeply moved again. Why? Because of the pagans that were there, the hopeless, the, the lack of faith and trust and everything. Um, he goes to the, the tomb, the cave, and he sees the stone laying up against it. And he says to, to them, take the stone away. Oh, okay, this is a real problem now, isn't it? Four days, it is not going to be good. These women do not want to see their brother in a state like this. By this time, all the the aroma of the, of the spices, the d- decay had overcome all that stuff. This would have been horrific, um, just a disrespect for the, for, for the dead, for the, the brother. And it was just like, it was unheard of to do this. So she panics. It's, it's not, we're not going to, and so what's on her mind now? Is, is she actually thinking about the glory of God and how wonderful uh, he, who he is? Or is he thinking about a dead, decaying body that's going to stink and we're going to embarrass all of us in front of it? Where's her focus? It's on that. And Jesus is trying to pull her back up to focus on him. Finally, she says, okay, I'll, I'll roll it away. He didn't need help. He could have had it rolled away, but he involved the bystanders. He's got people in there. He wants them to see what he can do, faith in him, that he can be glorified on a deeper, broader way, that they would actually say, wow, did you do that? Not, wow, Lazarus is alive, but... Did you do that? The power that's going to happen here is displayed in the words. 
Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And when we believe in him and are focused on him, there is a, a bond and a, a, he reveals himself, makes himself known, even if it's, if it's just in a belief in who he is. And there's a glory in there, a glorifying, a worship of that. So they took the stone away and he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me, that they might believe that you sent me. Again, that unity with the Father. He's thanking him that he always hears him. He doesn't need us help to roll the stone away. He's going to say, God, help me do this. Thank you that you always hear me. How many times do we do that? Thank you, God, that you're always right there. Thank you. The power that's about to happen is unbelievable. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. This is to emphasize the the power it took at his command to raise the dead. Lazarus, and I'm not going to break the microphone, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linens, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them around, unbind him and let him go. The power of his words drew attention when someone says something in a loud, demanding voice. Doesn't it? When you say something, let the kids snap together, right? Ooh, my mean business here. He's succinct. And he's very terse. He's exact in what he says. He says, Lazarus, here, outside. If he would have just said, hey, come on out, everything that was dead would have come out. The fact that he was specific with Lazarus, it was right to him. And we know that the day will come uh, that he's already talked about in John 5, 28 and and 29, all will hear his voice and come out, right? It's like my dogs I'm trying to teach them, Smokey, come. And everybody else has to stay. They don't quite get it. <laughs> Ginger, Ginger, come. Smokey, stay. Ginger, come. I mean, you've got to kind of do that. So this is the power of Christ because if he just laid it open, come out, the graves would have been opened up. What power that is in that. He comes stumbling out blindly, and I bet you he didn't even smell. I bet you when they rolled the stone away, it probably did stink. But then the minute he said that, I don't know, olfactory, the sense of smell is a very powerful thing, but I bet you that smell went away. Because there wasn't any more rotten body in there, was there? Comes walking out tried to figure out if that was penguin-like or what that would be like, you know. Somebody, we talked about it, wrapped single legs like a mummy. I don't think they did that. I think they kind of had it like this, right? But he comes out, and he again, he has people touch him to believe, right? Like Thomas, touch my womb, see and believe the smells. He didn't, he wasn't rotten body. They were seeing him, and they were touching him. And he was talking to them and hearing them. 
So we have a scene here. Now, notice that John doesn't spend a lot of time with this reunion that they had because he goes on to verse 45 and he says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. There's your glorification. Just a simple phrase. They, many believed he was glorified in this. I think if John would have spent too much time with everyone had a party, they killed the fatted calf, Lazarus, blah, blah, blah. The focus isn't Lazarus, is it? It's God. Wow. Jesus, look what you did over there. Look at that. It's on him. All things to glorify him. Let's wrap this up here, ladies. As I talk, the snow melts, right? Sun comes out, snow melts. The people were divided. Again, we see the great division. Many believed, but many of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Tattletale, tattletale, nee, 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 nee. right? There they go. They weren't getting it. They just witnessed this miracle. You almost scratch your head. It begs the question, how could they not believe this? When someone is spiritually dead and deceived, no amount of evidence is going to persuade them. No amount of evidence. They're going to believe what they're going to believe. You can present it, and if they're not going to look at it or acknowledge it, you can't can't force them. But many did believe. The unbelievers just wanted to snuff him out, snuff out his glory. They didn't want anyone to believe in him. And it goes on to say they went and they told the the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they say in verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. They're going to have a problem because he's going to take all of their glory, small capital glory, phony glory. They're going to take on this, and he's going to rob it all because look at what he's doing He's going to usurp our position here. We do not like this. So they start a plan. And the sovereignty of God is displayed in in what Caiaphas has said here. Even the unbelieving people, they're at God's beck and call. Because he says that, you know, the high priest at the time, you guys don't know anything. I know it all. And he prophesizes that Jesus was going to die for many. Not only the nation of Israel, the Jews, but for many. And also that he would gather into one the children of God who had scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. That's that one flock he was talking about, wasn't it? To gather them up. So he disappears, he goes to Ephraim, Ephron, not out of fear, but it wasn't his time yet. It had not come for them to crucify him. It's the Passover, so we're going to wind it up here with this is the stage is being set now for the greatest miracle of all. They've already got a, an idea of, wow, he can do that. The power, we just experienced that. Some didn't get it. Some aren't going to get it. The Passover was happening, but he retreats to the countryside before the Passover, and they were looking for him. They were looking for him, wondering about what was going on. This is the third and final Passover mentioned in John's gospel. 
And there's going to be probably over a million people packed in the city. We just saw pictures on TV of, of a million plus people in D.C. And in, in parts of Europe, too, they've had screenshots of millions of people, and one and a half million people. So this is a, a lot of people coming into this little town. A lot of people are going to be there to purify themselves. They're looking for Jesus, plotting to kill him. They're all coming to see, what is he going to do? Is he even going to show up? Everything, everything glorified Scott. He wants to be made known. He's not hiding from us. And it made me think about 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Because when we focus on God and are serving him and humbled before him and we've confessed sin that we know of and and just are worshiping God and just being a one mindset with him, we are filled with glory too. We have kind of come into that also. And that's what people see in us because Jesus isn't walking around here right now, but his church is. So the more that we as his as his believers live for him, not focused on the flesh, not focused on the crises that are out there, but wow, what is God going to do here? He is glorified in us. First Corinthians, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. What a great thing. God, we long for the time when we can be fully known by you. We can fully know you because right now we know that you fully know us. And despite all that we are, you still love us. You know everything about us and you still love us. Help us, almighty God, to just let our little light shine for you that the dark world can see. In the name of Christ, amen.